Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath. Okay, welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we are exposing the mysteries of executive function. I am here, as always, with our host, Sucheta Kamath. Good morning, my friend. Wow, I am looking forward to today's conversation. Me too. This is going to be a very special interview. I have waited a long time to talk to this amazing young man, I will say. But before I get started with that, let me just quickly tell you all a story. So one day there was an earthquake, and this story, of course, happened in a Zen monastery. You know, there was an earthquake, and that shook the entire Zen temple. So some parts collapsed, and there was a, a big havoc. So many monks were terrified, and they were running around scattered. But the Zen master was there, and he kind of stopped everybody after the earthquake and gathered them together and said, you know, you now kind of had a firsthand opportunity to see what a Zen master is all about. You know, you saw a a massive crisis unfold in front of us, and you see how I didn't panic. And you also saw that we very quietly, I gathered you all and we, I took you to this safe place, which is a kitchen and uh, which is the strongest part of the temple and, you know, didn't think much about it, but I made a good decision. And because of my guidance and my mentorship, we, we all survived and we survived without any injuries. And however, you know, since I'm a Zen master, you know, as I reflect on this, I think about this, it just occurred to me that in spite of my composure, you know, I kind of lost it. When I was in the kitchen, I kind of felt the tension and stress coming on to me. So I just drank a glass of water. And uh, as soon as he said that, many monks in, in the crowd had a little smile on their face. And so he was a little perturbed and said, what are you smiling about? And so one monk bravely said, sorry, Zen master, it wasn't water. It was a glass of soy sauce. Ah. <laughs> so the idea there is, as you can see in this story, the Zen master was, neither had mastery nor insight. And yes, we all hope to do better, not just during crisis or setbacks and roadblocks, but we hope to do better even when we are even keel. But it certainly takes practice. And we are in search of personal evolution, and we hope to reach that personal evolution by changing either our ways by doing less than usual, doing more than usual, or doing something unusual or something that is completely a new way. And that's why on today's podcast, we're going to talk to somebody who's a guru of self-change and who has talked a lot about self-discovery and has provided us with lots of opportunities to polish, uh, create a polished version of our better selves. So I call him a transformation master. So it's my total delight to introduce Daniel H. Pink. He is the author of six provocative books, including his newest, When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing which has spent four months of the New York Times bestseller list and has become has been named a best book of 2018 by Amazon, iBooks, Goodreads, and several more outlets. His other books, including long-running New York Times bestsellers, A Whole New Mind, and the number one New York Times bestseller, Drive and To Sell is Human, are very well known to many of in the audience, but they are my personal favorite, all four of them. His books have uh, won multiple awards, and have been translated into 39 languages. 
he lives in Washington, D.C. with his family. And one of the things I, I love about Dan, I've only met him once, not met him. I was in the audience. I call that as meeting Dan. <laughs> but I am hoping that today I get to discuss the book, When, which offers valuable science behind the world-changing idea of timing. If taken seriously, it can offer insight into a better operating self. So it's a great delight. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thanks for having me. So this podcast is about executive function, which entails self-knowledge, self-awareness, goal management, and directing self to become personal best. In short, uh, executive function is the CEO of the brain that governs uh, and gives orders to the rest of the brain. So do you mind, before I start with your work, if we talk a little bit about uh, you as a learner and a thinker, what kind of student were you and how was your self-regulation as a child? Um, that, that, that itself is an interesting question. When I was a kid, I was a very, quote unquote, good student. But being a good student doesn't necessarily make one a good learner. So in many cases where, you know, I, I'm an American, I went to a public school in central Ohio in the 1970s and 80s. And the essence of being a good student in so many ways was simply being compliant, being obedient, giving the authority figure what he or she wanted on time and neatly. And so in that sense, I was a good student. I don't think that I became a good learner through school. I think I actually became a good learner through other experiences in my life. So how did you become aware of that, that you were a good student, but that doesn't necessarily mean a learner? Was that a, <laughs> that came later? Oh, much, much later. Yeah. No, I don't think I had any idea about that I, I, when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I was actually focused on being a good student. I don't think I was really focused on being a good learner. It wasn't until well into my adulthood that I realized that those two things are not the same. I mean, well, well into my adulthood that I realized those two things were not the same. Now, I might have had an inkling of that at different points in my youth, but I never fully put it together until probably my 30s. I love that you distinguish between the two. And in fact, uh, what's so amazing as a reader and person who trains executive function, that your, your writing comes from someone who has great insight into the value of that process that can allow people to exfoliate their minds, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, um, no, and, and I, think it's, I think it's a really interesting, I think it's a really interesting question. And it's something that, that has become more important to me. I, I don't say, I don't give you that account with pride. I wish that when I was younger, I had focused a lot more on learning and just dealt with whatever the consequences would have been for how I performed as a student. But one of the things that has helped me figure this out, I mean, part of it is, is, is simply growing and maturing. But part of it also is, if you look at, say, the work of Carol Dweck and the difference between learning goals and performance goals, you know, learning goals are, do you want to master a material? Do you want to actually build a new skill? Performance goals are, do you want to get a good grade on the test? Do you want to have some kind of outward measure, some kind of metric go up? And for me, the classic example of that is French. I took French for six years in high school and in college. I got straight A's in French. I can't speak French. And, <laughs> and the reason for that is that, that I was focused entirely on being a good student, not on being a good learner. I was focused entirely on the performance goals rather than on the learning goals. So in a given moment in... 1983, I probably had memorized all of the irregular conjugations of the major verbs in French and could recite those on a quiz. But if you had plunked me into the middle of France and had me try to find a train or a croissant or a bathroom, I might have been in 
difficult circumstances. And so, <laughs> and so I think this distinction is, extra- is extraordinarily important. Now, the good news here is that I think that over time, I have become a much better, a much, much better learner, a much better learner. And I think that there were some seeds earlier in my life that sprouted, that, that, that actually helped me, that helped me do that. Other kinds of, and I think the interesting thing is that the experiences were not in the classroom. They were in other realms of my life. You know, so that brings me to this uh, question that I think you said that maybe you were talking, referring to being a good student actually kind of shows that you had great learning habits. That means, and you were a very cooperative learner. That means you kind of trusted the teachers or trusted the education to offer you the tools and methods that may add value to you. So for such a student, I'm wondering now, what kind of weaknesses did you have as a learner? And were you attuned with your strengths and weaknesses as globally? Well, that's interesting because I don't know whether I really thought about it that deeply. I mean, again, not to not to keep always going back to Carol Dweck, but I think as a kid, I had a, and I think it's partly the era as well. I had very much a fixed mindset. You were either good at something or you weren't good at something. You were either smart or you weren't smart. You were either capable at a particular subject or you won't, or you or you weren't. And so I think I fell. I think I fell into that. So I don't think I was super aware of any kinds of strengths or weaknesses. I think on the weaknesses, probably in retrospect, I would say I probably gave up on things too early, but that's partly having a fixed mindset. Uh, In terms of strengths, I was always reasonably good with language, or at least the English language. And that's probably a fairly consistent through line in my childhood and formal elementary and secondary education. And, you know, I, I noticed that your love for linguistics and you minored, I guess, in linguistics and I have well, masters. I majored, I majored in linguistics. Oh, you majored in linguistics. Yeah. Okay. And I, and I have masters in linguistics and one of my favorite things, and, you know, I'm also multilingual and, and languages came easy, but sounds like you have great, you probably also had great memories, like a Velcro memory, I like to call it, where information kind of glued to your brain very fast without having to do any intentional processing. And then what I see in your work, you are tremendous at making meaning which is why you are able to tell these incredible stories from all walks of life by, you know, weaving them, which is what adds value to all of us who read your books. So my last question about your own style and and your own insight into self as a learner is, were you strategic when it came to learning? But sounds like a lot of things came to you quite intuitively. So I don't know if you needed kind of intentionality in learning hard stuff, because not maybe a lot of stuff was hard. (laughs) That's another great question. It, I guess it depends. I guess I would go back to this idea that it was, I got pretty good at being compliant and I got pretty good at giving authority figures what they wanted. I'm not sure that that, that is learning. And I think that when it came to things that were a little more difficult, I don't think I had quite the growth mindset or the persistence to surmount that when I was younger. I don't feel that way today. And now, again, some of that is certainly maturity. Some of that also is in the the era in which I grew up. We didn't talk about fixed and growth mindsets. We didn't talk about grit. We didn't talk about strengths. And, you know, those are two, those, you know, in education psychology and social psychology and personality psychology, those are relatively recent developments. Yeah. So that brings me to the second part from, and maybe as, uh, as a parent, of three children, you you talk about your children, but I'm just curious, 
what kind of classroom environment did you grow up and how different do you think it is for the children now uh, in terms of is that conducive to learning? Does that exfoliate the mind about their own mindset when it goes, uh, what goes into learning? You know, I actually don't think there's in general a massive difference. You know, I went to a public high school, but not in a poor area at all. And, we, you know, we sat in rows and we did our homework and we sat there and the teacher talked and maybe we took notes. And then in science, maybe we did some very directed experiments and maybe in English we wrote a tiny little bit. I think what's interesting is that if someone were to go back in time, let's say that we were to take a student, let's take 11 year old me. All right. So 11 year old, I would be in fifth grade. Okay. Let's say we take a fifth grader. Some, I live in Washington, D.C., somewhere in the metropolitan Washington, D.C. area. We were to take that fifth grader and put her into a time machine and take her back to when I was in fifth grade, which is 1975, and take her into my fifth grade classroom. I think that she would be perfectly at home. I don't think that she'd be surprised at all. I don't think that she would look at it as archaic. I think it would be absolutely recognizable. Meantime, I think if you were to take me as an 11-year-old and put me in a time machine and transport me to a fifth grade class in 2019, I think I might be confused by the computers a couple people might have and by the phones and things like that. But beyond that, I don't think I'd be, I think the classroom would look pretty much the same way my classroom looked. I think many of the the, the approach to learning would be relatively simple and straightforward. I don't think I would have a, a massive adjustment to have. And I think that's a little bit troubling because if we think it's about, <laughs> I think if we think about say, you know, the experience of going in for surgery is going to be, it was different in 1975 versus today. Other kinds of experiences are are different, and the education experience is less different than some of these others. Yeah, and I do have a point in asking all that because you know it's so fascinating to me that all the books that you have written, you you kind of explain and provide insights so that people will be charged to make change, and you have a very specific and intense focus on self-directed change. And to me, self-directed change is a extremely executive function process and people are not used to, they don't get any training. They're even our education doesn't afford that, afford that, you know? Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I think that people come to that with different levels of, of innate capacity, but also different kinds of social experience. So, you know, I was as a kid, especially for a boy, was reasonably good at things like impulse control and maybe was a little bit slightly less of a knucklehead than some other boys. But it's not anything that anybody explicitly taught. You just had your assignments and did what you had to do. And if you didn't have the executive function, you didn't do well. And if you did have some modest executive function, you were compliant and revered authority, then you would do well. And this is the 21st century gap that I, I find that people need to really pay attention to. You know, even uh, the in, in your the whole new mind that you talk about this entire uh, you know, different approach to preparing the new generation. But in order to prepare the generation, you need to, the most important skill set that you need to teach is how do I know me? And what kind of information on a daily basis is the student getting to know yeah. themselves? And yeah. the parents themselves don't know themselves and the teachers don't know themselves. So, <laughs> And so when it comes to self-change, for example, the self-directed change, I am highly mo- motivated. I'm highly self-governed and I have tremendous influence on me changing me. And I tend, I will do better with self-help book because I mm-hmm. completely understand your message and I have the process to inculcate that and inhabitate that new world by saying, uh-uh, not, no more, because Dan said that on page 57 to implement this, you know, drink more water. Like even take a simple method of drinking more water as soon as you get up. 
if that's a new technique I'm trying, that requires incredible not checking your phone, you know, not stopping myself from doing anything but drinking water. So yeah. that's regulation is required. So anyway, I'm, I'm hoping to tie that in. So let's get started with amazing, amazing book, When. So in that book, I quote, uh, you say that we are smarter, faster, dimmer, slower, more creative, and less creative in some parts of the day than others. And so you tackle or take on this wonderful idea about cognitive fluctuation and see this daily cognitive roller coaster. And I would love for you to talk about that. One quick comment about that I was going to say is, you know, in my work, I came into this field uh, through brain injury and uh, talked about energy management and cognitive resource management for 20 years. And it's so wonderful that it's now hitting the mainstream through somebody like you. Even the neuroscientists have not managed to say that, you know. So tell us a little bit about this idea and how you have conceptualized this in your book. The idea is rooted in, in science. And w w if you think about our days, or just think about it just a given day, we make all kinds of decisions about when to do things. And we tend to make those decisions based on intuition, based on guesswork. Uh, we sometimes make them based on default. And it turns out that's the wrong way to do it, that there is this rich body of science out there across multiple disciplines that gives us real evidence on how to make these decisions better make smarter, better evidence-based decisions. And the starting point in some ways is making decisions over the course of a day. And one of the things that science tells us exactly as you said, Sujeta, is that our cognitive abilities do not remain static over the course of a day. They change. They change in material ways. They change in fairly predictable ways. And the best time to do something depends on what it is that you do. And if we just factor those things into our decision-making over the course of a day, we're going to learn more, we're going to perform better, we're probably going to be a little bit happier. I would love to review some strategies that you have introduced. So one idea is that slum into a spark, you know, how to convert that uh, dip that we experience. So you offer a lot of strategies to maximize personal cognitive reserve. So one such idea that you talk about is that restructuring either your day or taking naps or kind of doing some things like uh, including like drinking a glass of water when you wake up avoiding coffee immediately after you wake up and or say soaking more sun morning sun mm -hmm. uh, scheduling you know talk therapy so can you just give us some tips that and what what science shows with our listeners and what's remarkable for you in terms of your personal experience that you were not doing yourself well again it goes back to recognizing that our cognitive function is different at different times of day and one way to begin analyzing that is to begin with what chronobiology is a field, chrono time, biology, study of life, uh, a field of science that looks at our, our, our diurnal biological rhythms writ large. And one of the things that chronobiologists have discovered is that each of us has a chronotype. That is, we have a propensity. So some of us go to sleep early and wake up early, just naturally. Some of us go to sleep late and wake up late. Others of us are in the middle. And what we know is that about 15% of us are very strong morning people, uh, larks. About 20, 25% of us are very strong evening people, owls. And about two thirds of us are in the middle, what I like to call third birds. And that becomes the, the starting point in figuring out the right time in the day to do something. So here's what we know. Most of us move through the day in three stages, three broad stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery, a peak, a trough, a recovery. Most of us, let's say 75, 80% of us move through the day in that order, peak early in the day, trough in the middle of the day, recovery later in the day. Now, owls, people who have evening chronotypes are much more complicated. They tend to hit their peak 
you know, late afternoon, early evening, well into the evening. But what we know is that each of these three stages, our cognitive abilities change. So during the peak, which for most of us is the morning, but for owls is much later in the day, that's when we are most vigilant. And vigilance means we are able to bat away distractions. Batting away distractions is this, uh, this concept of vigilance is the key attribute of this peak period. So during the peak period, we do better and should be doing work that requires heads down, focus, attention, and energy, writing a report, analyzing data. At some level, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking a little bit out of school here, I think we can analogize that our executive function is better, that executive function is in some ways a measure, is, is in some ways at least analogous to vigilance. It is, uh, yes. executive function means that you are harder to distract, and that changes over the course of a day. So for, for three-fourths of us, that we're less, at least less distractible in the morning. Now, during the trough, which is the early to afternoon to mid-afternoon for almost everybody, that's a very a low-performing time of day for almost everybody. Uh, there's, a, a whole, there's a whole array of evidence across many, many domains showing performance drops considerably during that period. You see it in test scores among students. You see it in certain measures of corporate performance. You see it in jury and, and judicial decision-making. You see it big time in healthcare. And so that period, that early to mid-afternoon period is when we are actually at our worst cognitively. So that's a better period for doing administrative work, work that doesn't require massive brain power or creativity. Now, the recovery period later, uh, the recovery period for 75, 80% of us is late afternoon and early evening. That's a very interesting time of day because we are less vigilant during that period. Again, if we're in the middle or we're uh, larks, we're less vigilant during that period. But we have a hot, but, but our mood is actually pretty high. And so that combination of reduced lower vigilance and high mood makes it a good time for certain cognitive tasks that require a form of mental looseness, iterating new ideas, coming up with non-obvious solutions, brainstorming. And so what the research tells us fairly clearly is this, where possible, we should try to do our analytic work during our peak, our administrative work during the trough, and our recovery work. I mean, our, our insight creative work during the recovery. And one of the things that we see, and it goes to a lot of what you were talking about, Sucheta, is that when we try to explain variance in performance on cognitive things, so why are some people better at cognitive tasks than others? There are all kinds of explanations for that. Some of it is obviously is going to be native intelligence. That's a, that's a part. It's not the whole thing, but that's, uh, that's, it's pretty clear that's a part of it. Some of it is executive function, whether that's innate or whether that's learned. Some of it, a big part of it is social advantage. People are, are, don't start life in, in, equal, in equal footings. But what this research is telling us is that about we can explain about 20% of the variance based on time of day. And that's a big deal. That doesn't mean the timing is everything, but it means it's a big thing. And if we can just take small steps to do the right work at the right time, as I said before, we're going to perform at a higher level. I think, I mean, you have organized this in such a, a wonderful way that it tr clearly makes these connections uh, understandable, but also like the importance of Im implementing them in your life. You know, one of the research that was very striking to me that I have read and you also have talked about is that particularly the way judges give sentencing and how close or far away they are from the lunch break, you know, yeah. and I think that's devastating. <laughs> oh, it's, 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 uh, it's, ter it's, it's terrifying. It's, it's terrifying. And that's just, we look at, I mean, decision-making differs over different times of day. What that piece, what that research showed, which was a study of, of judges in the Israeli parole system, 
uh, done by uh, one of the researchers, a guy named Jonathan Lavav at Stanford University. What it showed is that judges were more likely to grant parole early in the day and immediately after breaks. And so there was the difference between seeing a judge before her break, immediately before her break, and seeing a judge immediately after her break was massive. And that should alarm us about the integrity of the judicial decision-making process. But you see other, you see other things. You see, in, you know, I mentioned juries. There's some interesting experimental evidence with jurors showing that if jurors deliberate, jurors that, who deliberate in the morning are less likely to resort to racial stereotypes than jurors who deliberate in the afternoon. So over and over again, we have somehow we have come to the belief. It's not even a belief because it's, it's not less affirmative than that. We just see it's, it's an assumption. We assume that all times of day are created equal, and they're not. They're fundamentally not. All times of day are not created created equal. There are significant differences in our cognitive abilities based on time of day. And simply folding that into the way we make decisions on a daily basis is going to help us out. Two thoughts come to my mind. One is, I think Dan Ariely's work about predictably irrational. Mm -hmm. I think we truly believe that we are neutral. We are under control. We have great control over our decision making. And this, all the work that you're, you're quoting just shows how clueless we are. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, there's a base. But that's a great point. You know, we are far less capable decision makers than we believe that we are. And we are far more susceptible to uh, diurnal rhythms than we believe that we are. And the second thought comes to I had a uh, Carol uh, Tavers, you know, who uh, research, uh, whose uh, main area of study is uh, a cognitive dissonance. And uh, uh, the second thought comes to my mind is I think when we are not performing well, we have incredible amount of justifications to give oh, yeah. and say, no, I'm fine. Or this or, and externalize the blame and, and call things outside you to have uh, caused you to not perform well. I see that all the time in my practice. <laughs> of course. I mean, that's a big part of it. The other thing is that another big factor is, is many people don't know how they're performing. They don't even have a good way of measuring, of knowing whether they're performing well or performing poorly. And as you know, many people have an inflated opinion of how effective they are, how able they are. And as we also know from Dunning and Kruger, that the people who know the least are the least who are the least expert are more likely to believe they're awesome. Yes. Metacognitive insight. And and in fact, I'm about to bring this software. Uh, I've designed a software to that trains the self-awareness in, in learners and thinkers to help them not so much improve cognitive ability, but the develop understanding of self by giving them. So on, in a daily basis, what is the mirror that we, we look into that allows us to fix ourselves? So there are two ways, right? Somebody tells us that you made a mistake or something didn't go per desire, or even we notice it. And second is if we have unfavorable outcomes or something that is against the goal. But those are, can be very insidious or uh, invisible feedback. So there's nothing looking in the mirror to fix me kind of process. And so I feel that we need to have a specialized way of introducing this understanding of self so that one, we can become a little bit appropriately, you know, judging ourselves and have some respectable acceptance that maybe I'm not perfect, <laughs> but at the same time, not feel crushed by recognizing that I'm not perfect, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in a sense, what you're talking about, I mean, not exactly what you're talking about, but you're, you're talking about all of us could use something akin to a coach, 
someone who cares about us, who is helping us get better, but who can take an outsider's view exactly. and who's, de who's dedicated to our improvement, not to degrading us, not to validating us, but to helping us improve. And that's why uh, in this particular software, it's called EXQ, the, we have virtual coach, which is uh, walks this, the learner through learning from mistakes of other. And if they the mistakes are not that grave, then you're looking at your own mistakes. So this having an externalized process of looking at mistakes and, and judging and evaluating that from a third person's point of view is extremely critical to develop insight and uh, understanding of self. Which brings me to this point that you talk about a lot in your book is that, you know, taking a meaningful perspective on the situation or condition you're in and picturing the other person who benefits from your effort, effort or action. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that informs our ungluing ourselves, so to speak, or unstick, un getting, getting unstuck? Well, right. It's, I mean, that's, that's a technique, as you say, for getting unstuck. That is, you know, what we know from a lot of research, let's take the, um, the work of Teresa Mobile at Harvard Business School, what she has found is that the single biggest day-to-day -day motivator on the job is making progress and meaningful work. So the days when we're making progress, we feel pretty motivated. The days when we're not making progress, we're, when we're thwarted, we feel far less motivated. And so progress depends in part on getting information and feedback on how you're doing, which is not always the case. But also, it also requires some strategies for when you're not making progress, what do you do to reboot, to reroute, to redirect yourself? And some of the things that you can do are various kinds of various kinds of mental exercises. So things like imagining how someone is going to benefit from your work. So if I'm, say, writing, I mean, happen to be writing a very, very short proposal for a new book this morning. So if I got stuck on that, which I always do, I might think, okay, let me try to picture someone who might read this book and benefit from it. Someone who might read this book and make different decisions about her own life. Uh, that might be a way to help me get unstuck. Another thing is very powerful is, is some form of self-distancing. There's a lot of research on self-distancing showing that we do better at solving other people's problems than we do our own problems. So let's say that we're stuck. One technique that I think is really effective is asking ourselves, you know, what would you tell your best friend to do? And I, I use that technique all the time. It, I, I think I got it originally from Chip Heath and Dan Heath's book, Decisive. But if somebody comes to me for advice, sometimes I will say to them, okay, so you laid it all out. What would you tell your best friend to do? And what I find is that in many cases, they know immediately what they tell their best friend to do, which is probably what they should do. Yeah, and are you familiar with the Batman effect? Absolutely, and so yeah. there's some, so there's that, so there's this, you know, the idea of coming up with a, well, yeah, exactly. What would Batman do in this situation? So it's yeah. a, it's a, it's a kind of that, that's an interesting, that's an interesting kind of alter ego aspect to it. But there is a, and and what's interesting is is that what we need to do is we need to toggle. We need to be self aware, but we also need to be self distant. And how you toggle between those two is in in one ways, is there one of the dials of high performance. Yeah. And I think from executive function point of view, we have cool executive functions and we have hot executive function. And those uh, emotionally laden, uh, emotionally charged decision-making routes uh, that circumvent some of the you know, higher um, order thinking skills. And so to activate the calm collective way of thinking uh, can be achieved through that self-distancing. Uh, what would Bob do? Or what would the Batman do? You know, what right, would I advise exactly. my friend? And the second thing about that, that advantage is, you know, creating new ideas requires you to have 
a perspective that is not just yours because we have a limited perspective and we are so we are we are bound to our ideas being final and amazing that we will rarely allow ourselves to shift <laughs> because that will require us to somewhat accept that maybe that idea was not that great so that also can happen stimulate uh, so to speak the creativity a little bit by thinking from somebody else's point of view mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. that brings me to this last question which is what you're calling you you've always had this you know calling for all of us to think about making a cultural shift or you're asking maybe the culture to shift <laughs> and and even um every decision that we take to manage ourselves better using these insights that we are gathering from anthropology social psychology cognitive neuroscience is uh, telling us that what we what the, the beliefs that we have harbored may not have been uh, the most accurate ones and the new information is telling us to change the way we lead our daily lives mm-hmm. but that requires intentionality and getting mm-hmm. cooperation from systems or organizations or culture like i'm thinking about like we know naps are effective and you know places like high end places like google may even have pods where you can take a nap but can you imagine in like middle america corporation you know like when people are in cubicles they will slap somebody silly if they yeah 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 uh, are taking a nap so how do you envision that we as a culture move in that direction where we are we are closer to self actualization i i think it's a tough one because i i think you identified what the interplay that makes it challenging which is that it's partly about individual volition but it's also it's partly about the systems that somebody is in and so if i have any guidance on that it's to start small you know you can't it's very hard to change a system it's very hard to change any kind of entrenched system very very hard and so if you go in with the aspiration to change the system you know from at its root you're probably going to be disappointed but at some level i think that that's a it gives us a false model of how systems change in many cases not all but in many cases systems change by people starting with smaller ambitions so that they decide to do one thing in their own realm to make things better and then someone else does the same thing and someone else does the same thing and someone else does the same thing and suddenly you have this cascade where things actually do change and it's so hard i mean inertia is such a powerful force both at the individual and institutional level that my best advice is starting small and being consistent starting small and being consistent and i'm not saying that's going to work every time but it does give you a fighting chance no i think it's a great great advice and so palatable <laughs> any change in, inviting people to change in a small quantity is totally acceptable right now, how can we apply this to parenting running a household uh, is itself a, like a uh, has systemic problems the way i see it you know <laughs> parents also need to change the way they raise their children prepare their children to tackle and become self regulated and also get their children ready for 21st century but they themselves may not be skilled and yeah. they are harboring a lot of notions that are self limiting what are your thoughts about that i think it's a really complex question because some of it is rooted in class so parents who are struggling to pay the rent who don't know whether their job is secure who's living in an environment where there is physical insecurity that's qualitatively different than a parent living in a you know middle class a middle class domain of relative physical safety and sufficient resources and and all that so i think that that like we we don't like talking about that in this country but that is a major factor i guess the other thing is that there are different value systems as well and it's one of the things that i've come to understand there are there is an approach uh, uh, there is a set of values that 
says that the most important values are things like purity and sanctity and authority. And there's another set of values that says what's really important is is tolerance and individuality and freedom. And those are very different value systems. And one is not better than the other. So you have that. So you have different class outlooks. You have different, basically, the deep structure of people's moral views are different. But I, I think, you know, at some level, it, you know, there's a, which uh, so much of it depends on as a parent, as a boss, or as anything is with like what your starting assumption is about other people. So if your starting assumption about other people is that they're lazy, they're shiftless, they need to be, you know, they're, they're lazy, they can't be trusted, then I think that's going to lead you down one path, a very controlling path. Uh, if your starting premise is that people are, like, want to do good work, are generally trustworthy, are generally good people, that's going to lead you down another path. And my view is let, let's start with that positive assumption and let people disprove it. I think what happens now in too many circumstances is that we start with that negative assumption. And so we build in mechanisms of control, whether in schools, whether in our households, whether in, in companies. And when you have people who don't need to be controlled, I mean, I just see like certain kinds of in certain kinds of workplace policy, certain kinds of workplace policies are designed for the 4% of 5% of people who are jerks rather than the 95% of people who are decent human beings. So I think, you know, one thing to do, one step is, is to assume that people are like you. Most people believe of themselves that they are honorable, that they want to contribute, that they care. So assume the same thing about other people and let them disprove that. As we end, Dan, answer this for me. As you look into the future, what are you most hopeful about and what keeps you up at night? I guess what I'm most hopeful about is that in general, there has, you know, that the arrow of history generally points to progress. So if we think about our lives today, writ large versus our lives 200 years ago, it's generally better. There's very few people who would want to live 200 years ago versus today. I think that the, the, where the arrow of history points is generally, not always, pretty, pretty positive. I guess what, what concerns me is that some of, our, some of the challenges we face are, seem well, their scope seems well beyond the scope of our institutions to deal with them. So if you think about climate change, I don't think we have the institutional mechanisms to deal with that. If you think about some of the breakdown in our democratic function, I'm not sure whether we have the, our institutions are strong enough to deal with that. If you think about this, you know, to some extent, inequality in, uh, is not something that our institutions are really well equipped to deal with. So that would, that the complexity of the problem, the complexity, scope, and force of the problem is, in, is exceeds the complexity, force, and competence of, the, of our institutions. That, that's what worries me. Wow. Well, I cannot tell you how wonderful this conversation has been for me, and I'm sure all our listeners are going to thoroughly enjoy it. And I hope you had a chance to tell some parts of your personal journey as a learner that I don't think um, many people often ask you. So I'm really, really grateful for your time today. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks for having me, Sujeta. All right. That's all the time we have for today. On behalf of our host, Sujeta Kamath, our guest, Daniel Pink, and all of us at Cerebral Matters, thank you for tuning in and listening. And we'll look forward to seeing you again next week on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at cerebralmatters.com. 
CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.